you, Ruth. I'd like to ask you to please turn with me to our text for this morning, which is Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. And you'll notice we have a couple of mirrors up here at the front. The idea of those is uh, to reflect back to you all, actually, uh, what I see, actually, each week when we gather for worship and what our worship leaders see, which is the gathered people of, of God. And that's really what we're doing in this sermon series is we are looking at uh, ourselves, who we are as God's people, who we are as his church. And we're gonna continue looking at that this morning. Genesis 11, verses one through nine, this is a famous story in scripture. Many of you have probably heard it before, the Tower of Babel, and this is what the text says. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city and this is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, the TV show The Office follows the lives and day-to-day drama of a group of employees at a small Pennsylvania paper company. There's the lovable couple Jim and Pam, the socially awkward Dwight, the uptight Angela, the apathetic Stanley, the quiet Phyllis, and a number of other characters all working in the same office. And supervising them is their regional manager, Michael Scott. Now, while it's clear that Michael genuinely cares about his employees, uh, throughout the show, he also comes across as naive, unintentionally offensive, and sad to say, insufferably self-obsessed. Put simply, everything always has to be about Michael. For instance, in one episode, Michael accidentally hits Meredith, one of the office's other employees, with his car in the parking lot. The accident cracks her pelvis and sends her to the hospital. And during her stay there, the doctors find out that Meredith also has rabies, and so they treat her for that as well. As a result, Michael does everything in his power throughout the rest of the episode to spin the situation in his favor. He tells the other employees that it's actually a good thing he hit Meredith with his car. After all, he says if that hadn't happened, she wouldn't have had to go to the hospital. If she didn't go to the hospital, she wouldn't have been diagnosed with rabies, and if she hadn't been diagnosed with rabies, she probably would have died. In the end, Michael reasons, he practically saved Meredith's life. This kind of thing happens over and over and over in the show. No matter what's going on in the office, Michael always wants to be the center of attention. He wants to be the hero 
the good guy, the one with the best joke, the best idea, the one getting all the praise. No matter what's happening, Michael always tries to make it all about himself. And the same thing is actually true of the people in this text as well. Two weeks ago, we started this sermon series uh, and we looked at the end of Genesis 1 and what it means that God created us in his image. We said that in order to understand who we are as God's people, as his church today, we needed to first understand what God intended us to be when he created us as human beings in the first place. And part of what we said about that, part of what we said about what it means to be human is that God created us to rule. That's part of what it means to be his image bearers. It means that God created us to oversee, care for, and steward his creation. That's our role, that's our purpose, that's our task as human beings. That's what God created us for, to rule his world. But we said, and this is important, that we don't just get to do that however we want, right? We don't get to rule God's creation the way we typically think of ruling, where we get to call all the shots, make all the decisions, and and use God's creation however we want, however we see fit. Instead, what we said is that being made in God's image means that we're actually supposed to rule like him, That's what it means to steward his creation. It means to take care of his world like he would. You see, God didn't create us so that we could go rogue and do whatever we want. Instead, he created us to serve as his representatives, to look after his creation and to rule it the way that he himself would take care of it. And yet, that's not what the people in this text are doing, is it? They don't seem to be very concerned with God's will here in Genesis 11. They don't seem overly interested in how he designed or created them. In fact, they don't seem to give God much of any thought at all here. The fact is that these settlers of Shinar, these city builders, these tower builders do go rogue. They do try to rule his world, not according to God's will, but according to their own. Rather than trying to give God the glory with what they're doing in this text, they're actually, like Michael Scott, trying to make the whole thing all about themselves. And to see that, I just want to look at a couple of aspects of this text together this morning. First, right off the bat, this text tells us that these people are actually in violation of one of God's commands. It's actually a command that we read in our passage two weeks ago at the end of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, verse 28, right after God creates us as human beings, he gives us some work to do. He tells us, be fruitful and increase in number. And then here's the key part. Fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, what God is saying here is spread out. Go to every corner of my creation. Scatter to the very ends of the earth so that you can fulfill your calling as my representatives in this world. That was part of God's plan for us when he made us. To have us subdue and steward his creation by exploring and occupying even the furthest reaches of his world. And yet, what do we see here? Verse 2. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And then in verse four, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And then they say this, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
So God commanded them to scatter, and they want to settle down. In other words, part of what we see in this text is that already, just a few chapters after he created us, human beings are already choosing to pursue their own will instead of God's. They're calling the shots for themselves instead of listening to him. They're choosing to trust their own plan more than his. And that's actually clear from the name of the place they choose to settle too. According to one of the commentators I read on this passage, John Goldengay, the meaning of the word Shinar is sort of a clue that these people aren't exactly following God's plan. Goldengay writes, for people listening to the story, the very name Shinar might strike a worrying note. In the Old Testament, it is associated with the worship of false gods. And then Golden Gay bluntly says, it might not be a good place to settle. In other words, these people aren't even supposed to be settling down in the first place, at least not yet. Because they are, they're already in violation of God's purpose and plan for them as human beings, what they're supposed to be doing. But then on top of that, the place that they choose to settle is called something along the lines of the plane of idol worship the field of false gods, the valley of idolatry. Golden Gay's right. This isn't a great idea. Not only are these people disobeying God's command by settling down rather than continuing to spread out into his world, but because of where they choose to settle, they're also sending another message to God, which is that they're not planning to worship him anymore. And that's because, quite frankly, these people are too busy worshiping themselves. Just look at how they talk about themselves in this passage. In verses three and four they say, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. I think it's fair to say that the only ones that these people in this passage seem to be concerned with are themselves. It's not God's kingdom that they want to build, it's their own. It's not God's name that they want people to know, it's their name. It's not God's glory and honor that they're concerned with, it's their own glory and honor. And if that wasn't obvious already, these people make it explicit with this tower that they want to build. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to hear this story in Sunday school, and one of the questions I had was why this was such a big deal, right? These people are building a tower, so why does God get so worked up over this? It always felt a little petty, maybe even a little mean that he would come down and confuse their language and mess up their building project. That is, until I understood what kind of tower this was. You see, these people were probably building what's known as a ziggurat, which is a kind of ancient temple tower with the main feature being a long staircase that would have gone from the ground all the way up to a shrine at the very top of it. And there are actually ruins of these types of towers all over Mesopotamia, which we know today as the Middle East, where this story took place. And that staircase was the main feature of those towers because that's actually what people believed they were, a staircase to heaven a stairway to the gods themselves, a gateway to the divine throne room. In other words, this wasn't just some tower. 
When these people say, come, let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves, they're not just planning a nice piece of architecture. They're not just giving their city a nice landmark. They're not just thinking about the economic impact that the project of this scale will have on their greater metropolitan area. Instead, what they're really trying to do here is invade heaven. That's what's going on in this text. These people are trying to depose God from his throne. This is a hostile takeover. And these people aren't just ignoring God anymore. Instead, they're actually trying to rule in his place. In a sense, you could say that this text is the anti-text of the one that we looked at two weeks ago. Because if Genesis 1 gives us a picture of who and what we're supposed to be as human beings made in God's image, then this text gives us a picture of what it looks like when we do the exact opposite. That's why God says what he does in verse 6. If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. You see, God doesn't bring judgment on this people and confuse their language just because. Contrary to what I used to think as a kid, he's not, he's not just being petty here. He's not being unfair. Instead, God does what he does because he realizes that these people are already trying to live without him. They're trying to pursue their own will apart from his. They already think that they know better than him how they ought to live. And in that way, this passage is simply an echo of Genesis 3 and our fall into sin. After all, what did the serpent say in Genesis 3 when he tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God told you not to eat fruit from the tree because he knows that when you do, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil for yourselves, for yourselves. In other words, Satan tempted Adam and Eve by telling them, go ahead, eat the fruit. Because if you do, then you will get to call the shots. You will get to say what's right and wrong. You will get to determine your own lives. You won't need God anymore because you will actually get to be him. That's the temptation Adam and Eve gave into and it's the same temptation that these settlers in Shinar are giving into here as well. Just like Adam and Eve, they too are trying to be God, rule in his place, take his throne, build their lives, their city, their kingdom the way they want without the true king. That's the temptation these people give into with this tower. It's the same temptation we still give into today. You know, the human condition hasn't really changed. Regardless of of where or when we're talking about, um, ever since our first fall into sin, it doesn't matter if it's Shinar, it doesn't matter, matter if it's someplace in the Middle East, it doesn't matter if it's here in the United States, Granville, anywhere else. As human beings who no longer image our God the way he designed us to, we are all of us tempted all the time to try and live like he doesn't really exist. As people who no longer function according to God's purpose for us, often we act like there wasn't even a purpose in the first place. Rather than live as God's representatives according to his rule, we instead continually try to rule ourselves. Like these settlers here in Shinar, we often settle for trusting our own plans over God's, worshiping ourselves instead of him, and building the kingdom we want 
without the true king. To illustrate that, I want to talk about something that's become fairly divisive in our culture the last number of years, social justice. Social justice is a huge value in our culture these days, especially for those who lean more to the left on the American political spectrum. You hear folks on the left talk about this being a justice issue, that being a justice issue, and in fact, pretty much everything ends up being a justice issue for those on the left these days. You've got social justice crusaders, social justice warriors, and all the rest. What I find fascinating about that is that social justice, along with a number of other progressive causes, actually has its roots in the Christian faith. And that's the case even though, ironically, many progressives today are some of the first to deny the validity of Christian belief. You see, the fact is that social justice didn't exist in Western culture until the Christian church came along. That's because before the church Christianized that Western culture was actually a deeply unjust society, at least as we would understand it today. Put simply, the pre-Christian West was a deeply patriarchal, socially stratified civilization that benefited only a very few at the top and left pretty much everyone else oppressed and impoverished underneath. For instance, throughout much of Western culture's history, women were treated as second-class citizens who were seen more as property of first their fathers and then their husbands. Uh, slavery was widespread and it was common for many people to fall into it at one point or another in their lives. Unwanted children were abandoned and left exposed to die alone out in the wilderness. There was no such thing as public education, no such thing as public health care, and no such thing as social services available to the common person. Pandemics and disease were common occurrences, and when they happened, if you had means, most people simply fled the cities and left their family members and friends to die behind. And when death finally did come, people were often left unburied. That's because only the richest people in society could afford a proper burial. And so for most people, when they died, they were simply thrown outside the walls of the city or burned. In short, life was difficult and hard. You couldn't expect much help along the way, and even death was undignified. But then along came the church. Because of their belief in Jesus Christ and the gospel and how they ought to live in response to it, the early Christians challenged that status quo. For starters, and you can actually see this already in the, the letters of the New Testament, both women and slaves were welcomed into the early Christian community as equal brothers and sisters in Christ and even given leadership positions that they would not have been able to hold in any other part of society. Christians also set up the first orphanages to raise all those unwanted children who had been abandoned. They set up some of the first schools, some of the first hospitals, and some of the first programs to care for the poor and needy in society. When the pandemics hit, they stayed in the cities to care not only for their own sick and dying, but also for everyone else's. And finally, when people did die, the Christians buried them at their own expense, whether those they buried were fellow Christians or not. As a side note, by the way, this is actually why sociologists today believe that the Christian faith spread so quickly in the first few centuries after Christ. Because through the Holy Spirit, God used the witness of the early church to transform Western culture and society. And it was attractive. People saw what the Christians were doing and they wanted in. They wanted to be part of it. In fact, there's a really interesting part of uh, sociologist Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, where he actually talks about a Roman emperor who wanted to restore paganism in the empire, complaining about the fact 
that they were losing all the pagan believers to the Christians because the Christians did such a better job of taking care of pagans than other pagans did. It's fascinating. I'm not making any of this up, by the way. You can go and look up all the history later on if you want. The point is that the early Christians were actually the ones who introduced the concept of social justice to our culture, and that's because social justice is simply the pursuit of a just society according to biblical principles. And that's what the early Christians pursued. Before the church came along, Western culture looked nothing like what we have today. But the church changed that. Because of how they lived out their faith, the early Christians introduced Western society to many of the social justice values that people today just assume were always there. But they weren't. They had their foundation in the gospel. And it was the church that introduced them into our culture. Put simply, Christians were the first ones in Western society to treat women equally, to care and provide for the poor, the rejected, and oppressed, and to begin setting up institutions for social good. The problem, though, and this gets at the point of what I'm trying to say here, and this is also why this concept of social justice has become uh, such a boogeyman for some in recent years, is because eventually people started to detach those early Christian values from their foundation in the gospel. It's no secret that our culture has become less and less Christian over the last couple of centuries, but even as that's happened, even as we have become less and less religious as a society, and the Christian faith has started to wax and wane in our culture, people still want to hold on to the values that it introduced into our culture. We might not believe in God anymore, but we still want to believe in the things that belief in God led to. We just want to believe them on our own terms. As a result, what's happened is that these values have started to take on a life of their own. That's why things like social justice, at least as it's defined now, seem so unrecognizable to some Christians. Because now, instead of pursuing things like social justice as part of our pursuit of God and his kingdom, people have begun to pursue them as ends unto themselves. And without the roots, the foundation, the basis that they once had in the gospel, those values have started to spin out of control, even becoming attached to issues and causes that at times oppose or contradict scripture. In other words, what people have done especially on the left, is take these historic Christian values and redefine them in such a way that they no longer bear resemblance to what they once looked like. But that's just one example. It's not just social justice, it's everything else too. It's creation care and global warming and alternative energy. It's sex and sexuality and gender. It's election results and economics and law. It's medicine and healthcare and vaccines. It's race and ethnicity and culture. It's art and aesthetics and design. It's scripture and theology and the church. It's whatever we want it to be now because it's all up for grabs. That's where we've come to in our culture. It's all relative. Everything is open to our own interpretation, our own opinions, and our own definitions. We believe now in our culture that we have the right, the power, to determine what's true and right for ourselves. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and no one gets to tell us anything different anymore. 
You see, we're still falling victim to the same temptation. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, like these settlers in Shinar, we're still trying to settle and build this world for our glory. We're still trying to rule everything according to our terms. We're still trying to determine what's right and good and just according to our standards rather than the standards of the one who created us in the first place. We're still trying to have the kingdom without the king. But my friends, the king has come. That's the good news. It turns out that all our attempts to supplant him, all our attempts to storm the gates of heaven, all our attempts to depose him and rule in his place have never succeeded. We've tried repeatedly, incessantly, continually to barge our way into his presence and take over. And yet instead, roughly 2,000 years ago, in the little town of Bethlehem, he barged his way into ours. You see, God's judgment is on full display in this text. These settlers of Shinar wanted to build a tower up to heaven, make a name for themselves, and avoid being scattered. Those were their three goals. And God frustrates all three of them. The text says that God came down, confused their language, gave them the name Babel, and then forced them to continue scattering the way he commanded them to in the first place. Because of their pride, their arrogance, their rebellion against him, the settlers of Shinar end up on the receiving end of God's just judgment. The king makes clear in this text that this creation is still his kingdom. But a few millennia later, he would make that clear in a different way. Once again, God would come down But this time, rather than judge us, he would live among us, die, and then rise for us. Instead of confusing our language at Pentecost, he would reverse that confusion. Rather than give us the name Babel, he would give us the name Church. And rather than scatter us to the ends of the earth in disgrace, he would instead scatter us to the ends of the earth in his name. Go and make disciples of all nations, he told us, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, in spite of our pride, our arrogance, our rebellion against God, because of his Son, Jesus Christ, we have received his mercy and grace. The kingdom is still the king's, but he's invited us to be part of it again. As Christians, we call that the gospel. It's the good news of the whole world. And as God's people today, it's the good news that we ourselves experience and are also called to live out and share. God has taken us and transformed us from settlers trying to make this world in our own image to people who have instead been restored to his. That's what we're going to spend the rest of the summer talking about. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, it's the human condition, at least post-fall. It's who we are as sinners and rebels. We try to make everything all about ourselves. We try to rule in your place, but you are still the king. 
Thank you for extending your grace and mercy to us, for calling us back to yourself and for making us your people once again. It's only possible because of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.